This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, my name is Roland Gulliver. I'm the Associate Director of the festival, and I'm delighted to welcome you here tonight uh, on a beautiful festival evening. Uh, it's atmosphere. Um, we had sunshine yesterday, but now we can be focused on proper literature and stories. I'm delighted to be uh, welcoming our author here tonight, uh, Karl Ove Konosgaard. Um, I'll just give him a very brief introduction. He's going to read a little bit. We're going to have a little bit of a chat, and then we'll open it to questions. Uh, there is a roving microphone that's coming around, so please do wait for that to come before you answer, ask your question. And then after the event, Karl Ove will be signing his books in the main bookshop. So uh, please first welcome Karl Ove Konosgaard. So yes, just a very brief introduction for Carl. Um, he's the writer of five novels that have been translated to English. The first was Out of the World, which won the Norwegian Critics' Prize and was the first novel, debut novel to win the prize. His second novel was A Time for Every Purpose Under Heaven, and he first came to the Edinburgh International Book Festival to talk about that book back in 2009. He has since then written, or had translated into English, three of the My Struggle series, A Death in the Family, A Man in Love, and a boyhood island, and it's a boyhood island that we will talk about this evening. Um, I'm quite excited because we have an exclusive of the new paperback edition, which will be available to buy in the bookshop. So, Carl uh, will read a little bit, and then we'll have to talk a bit as well. Okay. Yeah. The next morning, I was woken by Dad, opening the bedroom door. Up you get, sleepyhead, he said. The sun is shining and the birds are singing. I pulled the duvet to the side and swung my feet onto the floor. Apart from the sound of Dad's footsteps fading as they went down the landing, the house was perfectly quiet. It was Tuesday. Mom started work early. Ingve had to be at school early while Dad didn't have to start until the second lesson. I went to the wardrobe and searched through the piles of clothes. Choose a white shirt, which was the best I had and blue cords. But the shirt was probably too smart, I thought. He would notice, perhaps ask why I was all tarted up, perhaps tell me to take it off. Better to wear the white Adidas t-shirt. With my clothes under my arm, I went into the bathroom. Fortunately, Yngve had remembered to leave the water in the sink. I closed the door behind me, lifted the toilet seat and peed. The pea was greenish-yellow, not dark yellow as it often was in the morning. Even though I tried carefully to make sure all the drops fell inside the bowl when I shook myself dry, some landed on the floor, small transparent globules of moisture on the bluish-gray lino. I dried the floor with some toilet paper, which I threw in the bowl before pulling the chain. With the flushing noise in my ears, I stood in front of the sink. The water was a pale green color. Small transparent flakes of God knows what were floating in it. I kept my hands, filled them with water, leaned forward and dipped my head in. <coughs> the water was a tiny bit colder than me. A shiver ran down my spine as it settled on my skin. I soaped my hands, rubbed them quickly over my face, closing my eyes as I did so and rinsed and dried them, and my face on the light brown towel hanging on my hook. Finished! I pulled the bedroom curtain aside and peered out. The trees in the forest, above which the sun had just risen, cast long, dark shadows over the shimmering tarmac. Then I put on my clothes and went into the kitchen. There was a bowl of cornflakes in my place, with a cartoon of milk beside it. Dad wasn't there. Had he gone to his study to get his things together? No, I heard him moving in the living room. I sat down and poured milk over the cornflakes, dipped the spoon in and put it into my mouth. Oh my God! The milk was off and the taste of it, which filled all my mouth, caused me to retch. I gulped it down beside, because at that moment my father came across the floor, in through the doorway, across the kitchen, over to the worktop, I leaned against it. He looked at me and smiled. 
I took another spoonful from the bowl and put it to my mouth. The mere thought of the taste made my stomach turn, but I breathed through my mouth and swallowed it after only a couple of chews. Oh, yuck. Dad showed no signs of wanting to leave, and I continued eating. If he had gone to his study, I could have emptied the dish into the bin and covered it with other rubbish, but as long as he was in the kitchen or on the first floor, I had no choice. After a while, he turned to open a cupboard door, took out a bowl of the same kind as mine and a spoon from the drawer and sat opposite me. He never did that. I'll have some too, he said. Sprinkled some golden crispy flakes from the box with the red and green cockerel on and reached over for the milk. I stopped eating, knowing that a calamity was looming. Dad placed his spoon in the bowl filled it to the brim with milk and cornflakes, and put it to his mouth. The moment it was inside, his face contorted. He spat it out into the bowl without chewing. Ah, he said, the milk's off, oh good grief. Then he looked at me. I would remember that look for the rest of my life. His eyes were not angry, as I had expected, but amazed as though he was looking at something he just could not comprehend. Indeed, as though he was looking at me for the very first time. Thank you. Um, starting with that reading, and obviously your relationship with your father, and that moment where he sees you for the very first time, why did he, why do you think he never saw you like that before? I think I think he never realized what impact he had on me. I think he just, you know, have no idea of what he really was doing. And in this moment I think he did. Because I was eating sour milk because I was afraid mm. of him and he realized that uh, he must have done that. Um, and that's very interesting, I think. I mean, in a father-son relationship. Yeah. Um, that, that moment of realizing. But he, 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 that doesn't change him, though, that he still stays the same. He still remains this forceful, omnipotent character yeah, throughout the book. Yeah. I don't think he had any perspective outside of himself. I don't think he... But I don't know, you know. Mm. That's why I've written this book, <laughs> because I want to find out. Mm. It was very enigmatic for me when I grew up. Mm. And it still is enigmatic. Um, so this third book, A Boyhood Island, focuses on your family when they moved to Chamoya Island when you were a toddler, yeah. very young, and, yeah. and documents the period until you leave yeah. in the age of 13. Yeah. And it talks about you growing up as a child and that the life that you live, yeah. essentially, and how you, how you become the person you are. Um, and it's a fascinating look into how you, how, what it's like to be a child. And you've written it very much from, kept it as a childhood perspective. You're, you're yeah. unlike the previous two books, you're, very, you're not very present as the author. Was that a deliberate Yeah, act? it was very deliberate and very, very difficult. Because when you write something, you want to show off how clever you are or, or how good you can write or, or you want to have some reflections and you want to control, you want to show the, 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 uh, the reader that you know what's going on, that you are in control. But if you level the perspective down to a, a kid that's maybe seven or eight or nine years old, you, you can't do that. And it was very difficult because you have to be you know, not understanding, you have to be kind of stupid and you have to be uh, um, and kind of an, an enormous reduction of who you are. So it was a completely temptation all the time to kind of go up and have a reflection and then go mm. down again, just to show, I know, I know, I know. But that's the challenge, and that mm. was also the fun part of it. Because it's like, I had a feeling of, I still am eight years old, you know? Mm. And, and, but, but it's just much more to me and, and to us than that. But it's still possible to get access to that period, that way of looking, looking at the world. And that was, um, that was the fun part of writing this. Mm. Things coming back, you know, yeah. 
being obsessed by details, which you are when you're a kid. You are obsessed by details, very small <laughs> thing. For instance, cornflakes, if it's the best mm. to have them soaked in milk or if it's best to have them crispy. Well, these things children discuss, you know. Mm. I have children myself. This, this is the topics they are discussing. And it's a, it's a wonderful world. Mm. And uh, it also, but it also changes the... It kind of distorts the reality as well. I think one of the, one of the scenes that's kind of almost most shocking is when... Um, your mother comes home and you start sitting around playing a family game and you're all kind of sitting and playing and all very happy and your mother just says, oh, I'm changing my name back yeah. to my old name and it's just kind of dropped in and yeah. that kind of distortion of, of how yeah. you view the world is quite shocking. Yeah, and that's another, you know, guarding principle in this book is that there is a lot of things going on in life outside of him which he can feel and, and notice but don't understand, you know? Mm. And that's, that's the irony of the book. That's a kind of a ironic strategy. Um, and that's also how it is to, to, be, a, uh, to be a child. Mm. You are in the hands of some other people and you have to trust them that they want to do you good. And if they don't, you can't defend yourself against it, mm. you know? And that's also part of that book, being defenseless. It's very yeah. joyful, but it's also very terrible because there is a lot of things going on in that family between the father and, and the children. Mm. And that's the dynamic, really, between the terror of, of, of the father and the joy of everything else. Mm. But it's, and it's very much a process of your development of, of self-awareness, of your, of, your, yeah. of, your kind of your own personal self yeah. growing over that, that period. Yeah. That is. Um, I thought it's, it's, it's quite interesting because at the beginning you're very much just a boy who's, you know, the, the, the kind of the land, landscape has such a presence in the book. Yeah. And the kind of the, the feeling of you being this community right on on the edge of yeah. Of kind of civilization almost. Yeah. It is. It starts out very innocently, the perspective and, and the world mm. of of this child and when you are a child you are present that's that's what it is to be a child and, and you are not aware of others that much you know you are in yourself and you are in the moment and you have your own urges your own needs and you follow them and you try to get them that's mm -hmm. how it is to be a child but then you grew up and and you ha have to be aware of of others you know and that could be very brutal a very brutal process mm. i mean there is a I remember we growing up in an area where there was a lot of children. And this was in the 70s, so we were no adults around us. We could do whatever we wanted to mm. do. It was kind of maybe 10, 20 kids just running into the woods, <laughs> bathing or, or do whatever. So there were no adults there. We were free. But there were some very hard rules that everybody followed. We were not free. There was something, you know, you could do something you couldn't do, mm. which was absolute, you know. And if you didn't, if you didn't follow those rules, you were bullied, right? Mm. And that's uh, kind of an enormous brutality to that bullying, but it's still something that exists, and you could get rid of it in that situation, but it still is as a phenomenon, it is there all the time. If there are kids, there are bullying. Mm. And I've started to wondering, maybe it's there for a reason, maybe it's kind of, maybe it's even something good in it. I mean, it is, has to do with adapting to a collective, adapting to a we, you know? And you have to do that. That's what it is to grow up and, and mm. to be an adult. Um, but it is, in this book and in, in the next book, it's a description of that socialization mm. process, which could be so, you know, um, terrible and so difficult. And have children myself, letting them to school, you know, I have no long control over them, and I know this is going to be brutal, I know this is going to be hard, but you can't, they have to learn it by themselves, mm. you know and that's very much what this book is about But does, do, do you, th do you uh, the process of, of the story, do you feel that, you're, that you did learn because I kind of felt that you were forever being kind of perplexed and confused by your, particularly your friends' reactions to, to, to the way you were acting and to what you were saying, yeah. um, and almost your own kind of disregard for those rules and the way you just actually told the truth. Yeah. 
Yeah, but that's that's kind of the, the learning process, you know. I, I did something you, you're not supposed to do, and you get punished, you know. And um, I think I got punished so much that I, I kind of went silent, you know. I didn't speak up for myself. Uh, now I'm talking about being 30 or 35. Mm. I didn't speak up for myself. I didn't say what I really meant because I was afraid of the others and, mm. and, and, and their gaze on me. And this whole series, my struggle, that's the starting point from them. What if I just say it as it is? What if, if I just say exactly what I mean? And that's a terrifying and very scary thing to, 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 to start if you are so obsessed with other people's opinion mm. of you. So this is kind of the end of the social, socialization <laughs> process for me, is, is writing these books. And what happened? I mean, it's a lot of controversy, it's a lot of kind of punishment, and it's like you can't do this, and no, you shouldn't do this. And, and yeah, it's, uh, it's still working. <laughs> but it's, in it's interesting, because I, I like the fact that, that the eight-year-old Karl Over was, was going to say, well... I'm, I'm very clever, I'm, I'm the best at maths, I'm the best at words, but I'm not very good at running. But he's good at running, and, yeah. I, and, and he's, he's about fourth at running, and he's good at fighting. And you kind of, and you, you were very confused that people reacted very badly to this, whereas you yourself were thinking, well, I'm just stating the obvious, why are they yeah. so annoyed? And that, I think I find that kind of rang true for the rest of kind of your, you know, that, that childhood you was actually, was, became the adult that then wrote these books, whether they're called <laughs> novels yeah. or memoirs or yeah. however you like to describe them. Yeah, yeah. Look, look, I, I started out there and then I was, you know, the op exact opposite for maybe 20 years and I got, got back to that perspective. And yes, I think so. Writing a novel is very much a childish activity. Uh, I think you have to abandon a lot of things that is uh, has to do with being a grown-up. Mm. Um, there's a lot of... Um, I think what I'm looking for is a kind of a freedom uh, in my writing. And that freedom, this is the only place I know of where it is allowed is in writing and is in fiction, mm. you know. All other places you can't really do that. I mean, if you get together with, with a woman or in a relationship, it is not based upon you telling the truth about everything. It is not because then it will, you know, it will, will not last for a minute. <laughs> it is based upon lies and, and illusions. That's the concept. <laughs> yeah, but it is, mm, right? It is. And almost every Possibly. area in, in politics is the mm. same. It's based upon illusions and lies. Yeah. You're not supposed to say how it is. If you do that, you know, it's kind of people are, get very angry and... and, and but you can do it in fiction. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why we read books and why we have fiction. Mm. Um. But it's, it's interesting because I, I was thinking about this and that whole that kind of desire, the fact that you've, you've actually said the truth and people have reacted very negatively yeah. or been scared by it. Yeah. But in fact, as a society, we kind of, we're always hungry for the truth and the true story. And one of the things that came to mind for me was the fact that uh, if a film like um, 12 Years a Slave if that's based, you know, based upon a true story, automatically gives it added weight and gravitas. But then if you actually go, well, we're not gonna make, I'm not going to say the story, I'm just going to tell the truth. People, have, people then react very negatively. It's very interesting how people kind of want the truth but don't, you know, yeah. can't handle the truth, as someone said. Yeah. I think it's... If you are, I mean, in a social situation, you are... It is not what you're saying that is the important thing. It's the fact that you are saying something, mm. that we are together. I mean, I remember I had my mother visiting me a few weeks ago, and I had, I had bought a new furniture, and I <laughs> found it lovely and, and very nice, and I asked her, what do you think? And she said, no, it's not good, it doesn't fit in here, it's really is ugly. Mm. And I, maybe she's right, maybe that's true. But I didn't want to hear her <laughs> the truth. I wanted her to say, you know, oh, that's yeah. nice. And that's mm. how it is, you know. Mm. That kind of truths, you don't want, you can't have them. I mean, you can't have them. Yeah. You have, have it for yourself. But in a novel, you can have them. So do, do you, uh, that's probably a big question, but do you, do you, call, these, do you call these books novels? Yeah. Or? I do call them novels, yeah. That so was... Yeah, that was deliberate uh, mm. when, I, when I started out. I wanted, 
because this isn't me telling stories from mm. my life. This is not the stories from my life, but it's the point. It is kind of much more like um, an exploration of a life and, and much more an existential thing for me. What is a life? How is it to be? What is it to be, you know, 40 in our, mm. our day? What is it? And, and that's, that's what I'm looking for. So I'm just using myself as an example. Um, I think and there is a possibility in a novel you could, you know, you could write a thousand pages about one minute. That's possible to do, mm. uh, but you can't do that in a biography, or, or that will be meaningless, you know. Mm. So, so I, I do all those kind of things in here. Use all the tools from the novel mm. on my own life to make, you know, novels. I'm, I'm not that. I know there is a certain narcissistic ring to this mm. thing writing 3,600 pages about yourself. <laughs> it is, but I mm. do despise myself, yeah. I don't like myself, and it is, that's the struggle for me writing about this. It's so, you know, I don't want to do it. I didn't want to do it, but I did it because it's a novel, because mm. I, I said this is something, uh, I'm c coming closer to something here if I do it this way, you know? Mm. Uh, so it was... I, I uh, there's yeah. a couple of things that I guess... I thought it interesting in the second book where you talk about um, you, your loss of faith in fiction uh, and, and literature, and you talk about actually my 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 interest is, is is in the essay, and I kind of thought, well, actually, this is what these are. These are just very, very, very long essays, but that's not a particularly sexy book to sell. No. Uh, no. <laughs> so it's, then it's just thought, yeah, because you, you go on with there are a collection of essays of different things about art and life and yeah. death. Yeah. Um, but also, it's not. I don't think it is. I don't think it's just about you. There's no, particularly the, the, both books are in a, an amazing array of different characters. And I also think, um, particularly, the big, I like the beginning of, of a boyhood. It's funny now. In my head, this is now the first book yeah, because, it, <laughs> because it's now that was your childhood. But the way it begins with your with your family arriving, yeah. and you can't, it's obviously not a memoir because you're oh, you're there, but you're not conscious of what's happening. But you're capturing a moment of, of great social change, yeah. which I think, and I think you're cap, you know, you capture that moment of social change there, and then that continues through the three books. That there is there is yeah. a bigger, yeah, yeah. Th that's one of the most fascinating things about right. If you write about yourself, you could be as private as personal and intimate as you like but you still write about you know the zeitgeist of the, the time sign of the times if you think something somebody else thinks the same you know so we are we are connected and that's very interesting when these things changed you know if i see my own parents how they were being parents to us completely different the next generation is completely different mm. completely different approach completely different understanding what it is to be a father and a mother and it all happened on the same time. Mm. And it's not like people have, you know, made appointments, we are going to do this, it just happens. And I am mm. endlessly fascinated by those changes. <laughs> and my, my grandparents, they were very poor, living on a little farm, doing a little fishing, I mean, no money, just no education, nothing mm. like that. And then all of their children are at university, you know? And, mm. and that's just like that. And that changed everything in a society. And this book starts in, I think, 1969, and that's where that generation is establishing mm. themselves, and everything is changing. And I can't analyze it, I can't understand it, I can't have this above view on mm. it. The only thing I can do is, you know, write about myself and how I feel and, and hope I can capture something of it. Um, and I was, I was talking in Denmark once, and there was a woman who, who uh, raised up and, and said that in the 70s, in Denmark, there was a kind of a, a feminist revolution, a change in, in, in what it was to be a woman, woman, really. And she said, what did the writers do? Where did they, did they go? Yeah, they just started to write about the intimate life. So there was a lot of women writers writing about the intimate life, the pr private life, the personal life, you know. And she said, okay, what's you doing? No, you're, you're doing the same thing, and maybe there's kind of a crisis in the male <laughs> role, maybe there's, mm. there's a big change going on, and, and that's how you deal with it, you just, you know, 
write about small, small, small things and hope that it can capture something of the big picture. Mm. I guess the, the, the kind of the the difference between what your who your what your father was or who he was and what you represented in that kind of extreme, stern, remote person in the house compared to the father that you are, where you're you know your hands on and you have to look after the kids. That you know that that captures at a quite extreme level the difference between yeah the generations essentially yeah. But this is very much a book about my father. All these books. Um, and I have a, a colleague, a Swedish writer. I, I was, he was kind of my idol when I started to write. And he sent me a letter. And he was discussing my father, which was <laughs> it's very exciting. But he mm. said, what if your father had been born in 1968? How do you think he would, what kind of father do you think he would have been then? Mm. Probably the same as you, you know, with some slightly differences. Mm. But I, I think that's, that's a very interesting point. Um, because there is so much in, in what's expected of you as a man, for mm. instance, or as a father, that, that kind of define you. But no, he was a very chaotic man and, and mm -hmm. very troubled man. And, but, but still, that enormous distance he had to us, mm. I think that was the role in, in that yeah. time. Not, you know, 100%, but, but at least that was a possibility. His father was like that, you know. Mm. And it's very interesting because you, you keep that, as you say, you don't give that kind of ulterior oversight into your, you know, the eight-year-old Karl Over and his relationship to his father. And your mother is there, but there's a particular section where you say that you realize that within all these memories, your mother was the, the one person that held it all together, but she's the one person that's yeah. absent. Yeah. Is it? <coughs> yeah. I, she was almost impossible to write about for me mm. because she was very difficult to see for me and I think she was difficult to see because she was giving and she not demanding anything back and that is kind of invisible thing in a family the one who gives and the mm. one who, who don't demand anything back for it it's not say I'm giving you look at me but just giving you you know and that's very hard to, to describe mm. and to and because there's hardly no presence for a boy you don't notice it as a boy. Mm. And this is the perspective from a boy. So he, he doesn't see the mother. I, as a writer, did, but mm. he doesn't. Uh, well, so only the moments where she gets things wrong, like the swimming cap. Exactly. And She's and taking something, <laughs> or, or then you can see it. And the father is taking something or, or, or destroying something all the time. It's very easy to write about this conflict. That's, that's what, what, you know, is the fuel for a novel. Mm. But just giving and being kind, that's, you know, it's... it's it's <laughs> there's no mm. it's, it's, it's the only th novel I've seen that does that in a very brilliant way is The Idiots by Dostoevsky mm. but there you could see the consequences of being good and that's where mm. things happens you know and um, I think it's, it is touch upon what we were discussing in the beginning mm. telling the truth and the reaction what, what, what's going on around that in, in that book mm. and the idiot and um, I, just as you're talking there I was wondering do you see something because you've talked about the rest to your father but your mother giving and your mother kind of disappearing yeah is a lot it's what you talk about a lot uh, in a man in love you, when you go out you with your family and with your social but you you also disappear because yeah. you're trying to give, and you're trying to give to everybody, and you can't. Yeah, yeah. and that's the hardest thing you can do if you, at least if you have any ambition in life, is to disappear, and is to give, and not demanding anything. Because ambition is, you know, that's, uh, that's I want to make this, and you should see this, and I'm, I'm very, very good at what I'm doing. But nobody is interested in, in you know, um, saying that, because it's, it's unseen when you are in a family. And I don't expect that from my children, too. I mean, I, I would just be happy to them not noticing me, not noticing something was going on <laughs> in the childhood, because I want them to be happy. Mm. But I'm not sure if that's good, a good thing, being happy, having a happy childhood. <laughs> uh, it is, I'm not. Mm. It depends on what you expect from life. Mm. If you expect from life, you know, harmony, balance, uh, happiness, then it's mm. good. <laughs> but if you want something wild or you know something mm. powerful and, and then it's not then it could be good with a bad uh, childhood 
create a kind of unbalance and you have to make that a balance and that's the struggle and in doing that something happens and we want things to happen, don't we? Mm. I think it's interesting you talk about that, that sense of unbalance because as, as the book, as the Boyhood Island goes on, your kind of private and, and public selves fracture and go more, you know, become further, further and further apart as friends start to pick on you for your, you know, yeah. for being sensitive and liking clothes. Feminine, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can say it. Um, no, it's, um, we're, not, we're not, not feeling like those kind of boy traits of being aggressive and, and you know, yeah. fighting and, and being good at running and things. And then your private self, you know, you, go, you retreat into your private self for protection, but then in your private world you have this kind of unknown force of your father, which I guess then is how you then go into the, another world of, of literature yeah. and how you discovered books, yeah. which, I th which I think was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Literature for me was very much an escape, very much a place to hide. Um, and it was very good, very, very good, a very good place to be. Um, and then when I, I started to, to write, I kind of pretended, or, you do that, you, you try to be like writers you like, you know. But the moment I realized that reading and writing was the same, there's also a place you can hide or, or, or retreat to or, or disappear for yourself. Then I realized this is writing, I am a writer. Um, and I think that this has to do with selflessness, to be not, not being there with yourself, but, mm. but kind of disappearing. Uh, and that is how it is to be a child. I mean, that is, uh, that is the experience of being a child, the selflessness. You just mm. are there, you know. So <laughs> there kind of is, is similar, similarities. Mm. But literature was then, you could say, a place outside of my normal life. But in writing, it became also the other, pl other place, the place where you can see, the place, place outside. And I think that's what I'm trying to, to do in my previous books, to create a world outside of the world, to watch mm. the world, you know. But in this book, that was, that was the, I did the opposite. I, I let go of, of uh, the, um, uh, you know, disappearance, let mm. go of the hiding place, and, and should make this world into, into the book. No distance, you know. There should be a one-to-one -one relation between me, the book, and, and the world. Mm. And then I kind of let go of everything I liked in literature, everything I liked in mm. writing. I let go of it, and, and that was that was um, very strange. I did that. Mm. I can't really <laughs> believe I did. But it was it was uh, that, that that's the, this book is about to try to be present mm. in the world in the writing. That's why it's so many details in the book because it's you know I try to make them appear how how, how it really is because mm. it is like this that the world are disappearing for us we don't see it I mean that's that's common knowledge mm. and you can see it through in literature you can see it in art I mean and yeah <laughs> no um, and I guess the, the you talk about how having to almost having to change your approach. To this third book, in the in the process of putting, you know, writing this, because you've been t talked before about how you just kind of wrote it very very quickly. Yeah. Um, but I kind of got a sense of that the first two books go almost go together to get to the e end of the second book. And for me as a reader, I kind of oh, I can now go back to the beginning of the first book yeah. and then kind of go back it through again. Yeah. Whereas so now it's almost kind of want to, you've had to make a quite a physical step as a writer to move forward. Did, yeah. did, did, was that, did you kind of get to the end of the second book and go, well, I, that's actually, this is, that's just a two book thing? That was so it was, yeah. Mm. I, I written those two books. I really thought that was just one book and gave it to the, to the publisher and asked, uh, how do we publish this? It's 1200 pages, uh, um, one book, two book. And they, I uh, said, I'll think about it and I'll call you back. And they, they mm -hmm. called me back and, and they said, what if we make this into 12 books, you know, and publish one book each month for a year? 
and make it into kind of a mm. happening. Uh, and I thought that was that's absolutely brilliant. That's you know <laughs> the biggest gift an, an author can can get. Uh, and then that was pos impossible because they were, we're going to lose money on it. So we decided on a six book, six books yeah. through one year. Yeah. And then I could decide should I part this first book in six or should I just continue writing <laughs> and then write four more books that year. And I couldn't resist that challenge. <laughs> so I, so I, <laughs> while I was publishing the first, I was writing the third. And, oh, okay. and, you know, and then we were editing the second and mm. I was writing the fourth. And all through a year. So it had to be very, very quickly. I had to write the fifth book I had to write in, in two months to, <laughs> I mean, to, to get the deadline. And that was amazing because mm. you just don't think of quality, only quantity, you know. <laughs> and that's, that's a relief for a writer because it's so much, uh, so hard with quality, so difficult. Mm. But quantity it's easy, it's just you know, to, <laughs> to write. But I had a lot of help with book three and that's interesting because there's a friend of mine and he's a writer in, in Norway and he's coming here on tomorrow. Yes, Renberg. Yeah. And he's kind of, we have known it sort of since we were 22 and he's a kind of a, He's very gifted, very talented, and very good on plots. Mm. And I had no plot in this book three. <laughs> and the, the deadline was coming, and it was just episode after episode. So I called him, and he's been sat on the phone maybe for many hours during that deadline night. What can we do? And he kind of said, you move this there, and this there, and take out this. And I did exactly as he said, you know. Mm. And then in the morning, the book was there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Mm. Brilliant. Um, I noticed I'm hogging the stage. Uh, we shall open <laughs> the floor for some questions. Uh, there is a microphone. Uh, we start with the, the lady at the front. Can I ask about A Death in the Family, the ending? Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between your paternal grandmother and your father? Yeah. That is... Um that is the major part of the first book. Uh, uh, and the first book is about my father's death. And, and he died as an alcoholic in his mother's house. He moved back to his mother and lived there with her for two years. And he was drinking a lot. And she was also taking up drinking when she lived with him. And their relationship, I never saw that when I was a kid, what was going on between them, how, how know how tight they were or anything like that but I, I kind of I saw that relationship when he he was dead and I tried to figure out how, how it could have been for him but I, I, I know he was very very connected to his mother his mother was very important to him through his whole life and I know also that he tried to to get away from her you know and, and to be free but then in the end when he lost his job uh, lost everything he moved back to her and became a kind of a child to her again. And it's both very touching and, and, and very horrible, you know? It's, it's and when I saw that, I knew this is, I'm going, I have to write about this. Uh, and I have to write about the relationship between them and between me and my father. Um, this is a, it's very difficult to talk about, and, and, but it is, it's in the books. Um, as, but I noticed she had kind of a grip on him. He was a tall man, and I remember once, and she was a very little woman, and I remember once she was, you know, yelling at him, and he was, he was just like a little child. And that was my father, who I was so afraid, you know? Very confusing moment for me. Because you see that all those relations are in... Yeah, this is the thing I, I'm writing about. Not directly, but it's in there. It's all in between things, you know? That, that, that I'm writing about. I think it's interesting that in A Boyhood Island, having the first two books as a, as a context, you're then seeing the grandparents again yeah. through, through the eyes of the, of the young Carlo. Which is very happy. Yeah. 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 And it's quite the, that context of him going to the house, which in the first book he spent, you know, he spent days and weeks cleaning and then he's seeing you know he's going to the toilet that he's scared in and, and that having that, that context and those layers yeah and the, the kind of you know the mad communist uncle coming in yeah and so that that's quite interesting way that the, the, the three books work together I think. yeah 
And there is also a kind of a classic relationship in this because if you see to Ibsen and ghosts, that's the mother and the son, and the son is dying, and it's it's kind of an archetypical in a way mother-son relationship. Um, but for me, it was real. Uh, question here. I was intrigued by uh, reading. I think in the first book you mentioned about um, what a bad memory you had for um, <laughs> events of your childhood, and also I think also in a <laughs> An interview I read, you said specifically dialogue, a terrible memory for dialogue, and also that at the age of 20 you destroyed your um, youthful journals and memoirs or whatever. Yeah. So how do you remember all this stuff? And also, um, how do you write such detailed dialogue of, of these events? You know, yeah. power of recall is, to me, phenomenal. How much of that is then a fictionalised version of events that you kind of vaguely recall? How can you remember conversations you had with people when you were 13? Uh, you're out on a date with a girl and there's, there's, there's lots of dialogue involved. I can't remember yeah. conversations I had with people yesterday. No, <laughs> neither can I. <laughs> no. no, the dialogue are, are, are not you know, documentary stuff. It's, it's invented. It's, I tried to make it as, as, um, as reasonable as, as, as it could be. But it's true. I started book three, which is a recollection of childhood, by writing about memory and saying I have maybe ten iconic memories, and that's it from the whole childhood. And then the book is the process of finding, finding it, and it comes in writing. And I think it's it's a matter of opening up to something that we have inside. And I think it's the same in psychoanalysis, for instance, that if you if you have so much attention to a period of your life, and if you are completely open toward, towards it, writing is about being open, then it, it kind of a little bit comes back, and then, then you have this little bit as a tool, and it comes back more and more and more. So what I, what I remember basically is landscapes and rooms, and, mm -hmm. and I have very good memories of that, and that's why I'm a very visual writer. Dialogues of people, that's... In, in very much invented, but the situations are real, you know. But then I'm just thinking, what could have been said then? And it has also something to do with an air you have. If you write about the 60s, then you have an air for the 60s and the 70s, and that's just in in writing. It's like it's like tones, really. It's like music, really. But I've never been interested in doing something exact. I've never said I. I, I that's not. The agenda I, I, I had, uh, but I wanted to look very true and re realistic. How did you put how easy was it or difficult to access those those memories using landscape and, and it's, rooms? Uh, and it is. It's really a matter of either being outside of it, and then it's no access. And, and um, as a writer, I spend much more time not writing or not being able to writing or being outside of it than inside of it. So for me, writing process is writing bad, 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 bad. And then something happens. And then it's easy. Then it's mm -hmm. just, you know, just, just to write. And then it's over. It's impossible again. <laughs> so this, but it is kind of a dynamic. If you try, 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 something happens and, and something is opening up. Uh, I think. So it's very much the writing process we are talking about. Uh, question of the gentleman at the back. Carla B, um, at the end of the second volume, you lay out uh, something of an artistic credo, and you touched upon it this evening about your proximity to the truth, to the writing, to be in life. Um, could you say some more about how you felt you could not find that truth in the more realist form of the novel, which most of us to this day read and predominates? If you could say a little bit more, not so much of your rejection of it, but of where you couldn't get that proximity to the truth through the realist form. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I, I can't speak in general of, of this. If I do, I mean, I, I'll say something very wrong. But for me, it was like the form of the novel is it's adequate, in, in a, is relevant in a period of time. 
this is the way we express our life through this form. But then life changed, you know, and then everything changed, and then form is dead, it's not relevant anymore. And the novel is kind of a fantastic thing because it can change, you know, it is possible to change it, but then you have to break down the form. And for entertaining novels, the form is brilliant, as, as it is in, in films, you know. But if you, if you try to write a film, it's rules. You have to you know this and that, there and then this happen. It's kind of very static. And it is like a fairy tale. But if you want a film to look like life, you have to change it completely. And the problem then is, then you are Tarkovsky and it's very boring, you know? And, and, mm. and there has to be an element of, of, of entertaining or plotting in it. But the, the interesting thing is how far can you go without a plot before it's unreadable. And my experience is, I thought I got way, way, way beyond the limits of, of boredom in, in these novels. I, I did. <laughs> and then I realized, no, it isn't. I could go even further. There is something, <laughs> there is something in there. So it's in the last book, I, I go in, in, a, in, a, in the hall and, try and just mention everything in, you know, in the, what's the word? You open the, where the clothes are. Uh, Cold crib. Yeah, and I just mentioned everything in there. Is that possible to do? Yeah, it is possible. It could be, you know, interesting or entertaining or something. It is. But this is, uh, it, yeah, this has to do with form and, 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 and the need to break the form to get it closer to the formless life. But then you have to change it again. I mean, I, this worked when I did it for me. In 20 years' time, it w this would look so uh, superficial and so strange, I think. Uh, lady with a question there. Hi. Um, earlier you talked about telling the truth and how people often have a very negative reaction to it. And I wondered, because in the second book, you talk about the Swedish welfare state and you're a bit critical of it, yeah. and I wondered how much this fe feeling you have of having to be socialised and being criticised for telling the truth is to do with being Scandinavian I and the social thing. Very good question, very good question. I, mm. I think it is, I think it has a lot to do with that. I think this is a very un-American way of, of, of thinking about society and, and yourself. Uh, yeah, just... Do you think that an American would ever have felt the need to have written this kind of book because maybe you had to write, to write it because you were Scandinavian. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I was in, in New York with this book and, the, and then someone was saying to me, this book could never have been written on Manhattan. That's impossible because mm -hmm. there it's about to show something, you know, uh, or, or to be something or this is very superficial, but, but there is some truth in it, you know. But in, in, in Scandinavia, that's, that's not how it is. It's, it is, uh, this is, um, you know, the law of Jante is a very famous Norwegian law. Uh, it's, it's, it's a writer who wrote Ten Commandments down. And they say, you are not supposed to think you are anyone. You are not valuable. You are not worth anything, you know. And he presented this as a very negative thing. Uh, and it's kind of repression, how the society repressed individual uh, people. You, you, are not, you can't wear a silly hat because you know you have to be <laughs> like everybody else. Or you can't think you can dance, you can't think you can sing. Who do you think you are? You are, you are nobody, you know? And that's, that's law is something we, when we grew up, it was like that. You were not supposed to think you were worth anything, you know? Uh, then you could change that and look completely different towards it as something very positive, you know? It has to do with solidarity. It's not you that are important, it's we that are important, you know? We are more important than you. And that's uh, partly a protestantic thing and partly a socialist thing. And the welfare state comes from those two areas. So, but I have to be 45 to realize that. I have, you know, been, I thought this was only repression. I saw only repression in it. And I thought this is, you know, this is personal. They don't like me, but it's not. And it it's, could be a good thing as well. Uh, gentleman here at the front of the question. Thank you very much. I have, a, uh, I have a technical question. I myself, as a novelist, I have written my 
next novel one week ago. Ah, and my okay. wife is, is, is reading my novel, now manuscript. And she phoned me and she said, <laughs> I hate this chapter. Who dare you to write this chapter? And my question, if your wife phoned you and yeah. said, I hate this chapter, what yeah. do you do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need I need your answer. <laughs> yeah, it depends it depends on what your relationship to your wife really is. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. I but I gave you know I gave the whole book to her, to my wife, when I written it. And and uh, and it, it's about her. Um and she there was only one thing she wanted to remove. And that was very, very insignificant. That was, I have written that we were in a, in a uh, kind of amusement park. They were riding with horses. And I, for some reason, thought that she was, you know, having a whip and whipping the horse. And sh that she couldn't live with. No, I've never <laughs> whipped a horse in my life, she said. You have to take out that. The rest of it, I mean, she being all those kind of things that she is in the book, she accepted. But I would never listen to her if, if she said something about, you know, the quality of something. This is bad, badly written. Um, I don't think I would, but I don't know why she didn't like it. I have no idea. Sorry, can't can't help you. It's, uh, there's going to be a, a tense phone call later on tonight. Um, the lady here. Oh yeah, I just had a question about the uh, the second book, A Man in Love. There's a passage in it that I thought was quite unusual. Um, and different from the first book and the rest of that book. It's where you have a long conversation in a cafe yeah. with your friend that you stay, first stayed with in Stockholm. Yeah. And he goes on at great length about what is good about your character and what is good about your writing. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and it's so different from the rest of your self-critical narrator's voice. Yeah. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk a bit about that passage. Yeah. Yeah. I can. Um, I don't think he meant it as a compliment, the things he said about me being <laughs> good. Uh, quite the contrary. I think he thinks that I'm good in an almost um, neurotic way. Uh, and it kind of restricts my everything I do. Because I have this idea of being good is important. That's, so that's not you know, flattering me. That's kind of the opposite. But what he says about my writing, that's, that's true. That's self-flattering. And I thought, could I include this? And I, yes, because it's true for me. I sometimes think that, and I guess you do too as a writer, you sometimes think you are, you know, this is, this is great, this is fantastic, and I have written it, you know. And I wanted to include those kind of things in, in the book. And, and some things are very embarrassing. Uh, in the book six, I, I said that, uh, oh, um, maybe... I think this is very good. Maybe it's, it's better than Jonathan Franzen, I'm saying, right? This is, this is, I'm actually a better writer than Jonathan Franzen. And everybody can think that when you write. But it is kind of, it's not easy to put it in there. But, but, it, is, but it is true. I did think that, and I put it in. <laughs> but everybody understands that, I, you know, this isn't, this isn't, yeah. No. <laughs> some more questions? Take some, uh, let me go work away. That lady in the purple top. Um, hi. I was wondering about what you said about your dad, because I'm from Norway too, and just about where you live in Norway. You come from Arnold, right? And do you think that, you know, you talked about how your dad was very this type of parent and he was very like strict and stuff like that. Like, if you had been from another part of Norway, do you think that that kind of, how you would have grown up would have been totally different if you didn't live on that island and that kind of Christian south of Norway kind of environment like in Oslo for instance do you think you could ever written this type of you know six novels if you lived somewhere more urban or somewhere I don't know yeah no that's a, that's a very good question uh, I think it's the same with with time if I if I started this novel one year earlier it would have been completely different you know and if I had moved you know maybe two miles to the south I would be a completely different person and I, I'm very fascinated by that way of thinking because there is there is an element of what's determined you know the determination 
and it has to do with fate, things you can't get away from, that, you know, forms you. And then you have all the other things that, 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 that surrounds a life. Um, but I don't think... I've just written an essay about fate, uh, and I, so I had to think about it. And I don't think... I don't think you can choose your life. I don't think you can. I don't think... I don't think that. I think it's, it's very determined, your life. And I think you can have an idea of, of that, like you could... But I think it is... I just got a, got a, a baby, and I, when I see her, I think... Not everything in the world can happen to her. It's not like it's endless possibilities. Mm -hmm. It is kind of narrow in, in a way. Um, but in, in the books, I've tried not to think like that, not to think in those big, big terms, but just being as close to life as possible and hoping that those structure would be shown in, in, in some way. But I, I think like that. I mean, that's, I'm very interested in it. But there is a, a sense of, um, to go back to that sense of how writing with, with place, the fact that leaving, almost the, the leaving Norway and, and running to, away to Sweden, that kind of fracturing of your relationship with Norway meant that you could then write about it. Because again, it's, uh, yeah. the, you know, Norway as a country, so particularly in, in the, in the Boyhood Islands, is so present in terms of the landscape. There's an amazing, the amazing road trip you go on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is an element, this is a very, very, very small exile, you know, between Norway and, mm. and Sweden. And in, there you have a distance, and the distance makes it possible to write. Uh, I lived in Bergen for 12 years, and I tried to write about Bergen while living there, and it was impossible. It didn't, you know, I didn't have the distance, I couldn't see it properly. And you need the same distance to yourself. So it's not like you can write about your present self, that's impossible. There is always a distance, and that makes it possible to write. So there is always one level above the level in the novel, no matter what. Mm. And, uh, and that's the reader's level, you know. So instead, to, to get closer, you have to get yeah. further away. Yeah. Some more questions? We've got a couple of minutes. Are there any questions at the back? Because I know you're up in the dark. Uh, that gentleman there. And in, your last, in, in your latest novel, you, you talk about it being from the perspective of just you as a small boy. But you hinted as well at the idea that um, it was the tension between what you were seeing and what the outside world, what, yeah. what was going on. And yeah. I wondered whether that was the space between you as an eight-year-old and the way you're seeing the world and what was actually going on was the, the tension between the, the space between those two places yeah. was where you as a novelist could exist. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the same space as we were talking about here, you know. Um, um, like there is a certain irony in it, because if, if you... But I try to pretend like I don't know about it, you know, when I write. I try to be very, very true to the perspective. But that's impossible in... But it could be possible, maybe, in the writing process, it is possible to get very close to it. Yeah. Is, is how difficult is it? To, yeah, to it, no, it is. It, no, it reality. isn't difficult. No, it isn't because you, these things kind of happens automatically. There is kind of a lot of dynamics in if you have characters. There is a lot of dynamics. Um, for instance, um, uh, the father's view on the son. He's aware of him wherever he goes. What kind of mood he is in. He kind of. <laughs> He's like God, you know. He's, his presence is everywhere. And in the beginning, that's not a problem. That's only in the house. But then it starts, that presence starts to, to manifest itself outside the house. And these processes, the child is unaware of, of course. But, but, uh, but it still is something in the novel that leads in that direction with a certain logic to it, I think. Um, but then it's very simple, too, because a, a child understands very little. It's much more difficult to do the same thing if the, the protagonist is 27, you know. But it still is working in the same way. There's a lot of things you don't understand, and, 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 but that still guides your life. That's my theory, at least. Well, I'm afraid um, we have run out of time. 
Um, I'd love to keep going because there's nothing coming afterwards, so we could just keep talking all night. Uh, but I get into trouble. Um, so I'm afraid I have to draw proceedings to a close. Carl Over will be signing his book in the bookshop. Uh, so you can come talk to him then, ask him some more questions. Uh, as you mentioned, Tor Renberg will be here tomorrow night. Uh, <laughs> we'll see him. So come go see him. Great plot. He said it here. Um, <laughs> we shall look forward to hearing of the outcome of the horrible chapter of that said novel. <laughs> and I'd also like to thank uh, Nola and the Norwegian Consul for Edinburgh for their support and for bringing on the Norwegians, Norwegian writers here to Edinburgh for a couple of days in the rain. And uh, thank you to you for coming, but mostly thank you to Carl over Knosgaard. <laughs> More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Ed Book Fest.